Hi, I'm Emily, and I wish I knew more about how to let go of a shift after I finished. Hi, my name's Joseph, and I wish when I started I'd learn more about how to communicate with patients, family, and friends. Hi, my name's Lily, and I wish I knew more about dressing selection for wound care. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. My name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we're joined by Mr. Michael Handy, who is the Assistant Nursing Director of Trauma and Orthopaedics. Welcome. Thank you very much. The format of our podcast is going to be very much featuring the person that we're talking to as a bit of an idea of different paths in nursing. Um, and to do that, we're going to get to know Michael a little bit before we go into his five things you need to know about patient assessment. So, Michael, can you tell us your origin story, mate? Go full Marvel style. Tell yeah. us from the start. More than happy. So, I'll go from school. So, when I left school, I thought I was going to be a businessman. So, I left and studied business and then I went into um, marketing and realised it was not my forte. And while I was studying, I used to work at a nursing home and as a, like the trolley dolly and I thought I'd get more hours back as an IN. And so, I went into that and went, yeah, not a bad gig and then went over to nursing and then from there, I've gone on to here where I am today. So, an accidental nurse somewhat. Very much, yeah. very much. Right, excellent. So, what did you want to be? Like, this is it. It was back in the day of Wall Street, so I wanted to be like the next Gordon Gecko. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing the same amount of money now, wouldn't you? Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> and the prestige. <laughs> and so when you first came, um, graduated as a nurse, where did you think you were going to work? And that was the thing. When I, when I started, I wanted to work in ICU. Um, and that's where I thought, like emergency in ICU. Um, didn't get any of that and ended up working in a medical ward at St Andrews. And I did that for a year. And then I went abroad and worked agency over in the UK. What was that agency experience like? Did that, I mean, get working across a lot of different areas? Yeah. So I started working a lot and then got into emergency while I was working in the UK. And that's pretty much where I worked ever since. Yeah. I, 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 the reason I sort of asked that is I guess there, there's not as much opportunity anymore to taste a few things before going into your area that you end up landing in. Like grad programs tend to land in one spot and stay there now. Yeah. Um, I certainly had an experience of having two quite different areas in my grad year as a nurse and then have at later stages been into these roles where you get to look at lots of different areas in the hospital. And I guess what do you Thinking back, was the agency bit giving you a bit of an insight into lots of different areas? hundred percent. It gave me confidence that I could work anywhere, and even from there, because worked in the UK, and then I went and lived in Brunei for three years, and worked in a whole bunch of different jobs over there. Jobs that get like looking back, that I was probably never qualified to sort of do, but still was able to do it. And um, so, yeah, it was having those experiences. Oh, awesome. Because I think that gives a bit of a nice segue into the five things that um, we're going to hear from you, which are really essential transferable skills across lots of different settings within nursing, which was kind of why we wanted to start the podcast here. 
So when we asked our new graduates, you know, what they'd most like to learn about, patient assessment uh, was really, really critical to that. Um, so could you explain to us five things that you would use to assess a patient? I'm more than happy. Um, and, and I totally agree. This is, this, is, this is fundamentals and it's one of the most important things that we, we do every day and multiple times a day. And I think from my perspective and looking at where nursing has sort of come, they sort of lose a lot of the fundamentals and it becomes more technology-based and everything like that. So my first one that I, I would like to say is be tactile. You need to touch the patient because I think if when you lay your hands on a patient, whether it's just taking a pulse or something like that, you get so much feedback from the patient, you know, whether they're tachycardic, how their skin feels and all this information that you receive, which you would never get from um, just putting on like a blood pressure cuff and, and a SATS machine type of thing. So I think one of the biggest thing is touching the patient. It's a really good point. And I am one of those people that won't put gloves on when I'm just going to touch someone's skin. And people look at you with just sheer horror, what you're touching someone with no gloves on. We've become really conditioned to being like, and I think COVID's been an accelerant to this yeah. of just layering up all these barriers that interfere with our ability to assess a lot of factors with patients. No, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And like the more the more barriers you sort of put, like in front of you, it, it's the, the more you're distancing yourself from that patient and the patient sort of care that you're trying to provide. Do you think that patient touch too helps build a relationship? When you know, as opposed to as you said, putting a cuff yeah. on and putting a you know a oximeter on a finger yeah. do you think you know touching a patient skin to skin no, 100%. builds it's, a relationship it's, and it's, like, it's a therapeutic relationship because like this is it it's all because you, you get to in my current sort of role you get all these sort of where feedback from patients where everyone's rushed people's too busy and everything but if someone if you actually spend the time to to be with the patient and whether it's a minute but you're there hand on on their wrist or wherever they actually feel connected to you and that you actually have time for them and you're, you're, you're giving them the attention that they deserve. Great. So should we move to number two? Yep. So the second one is trust your gut. Um, and if you feel like there's something wrong, it probably is. And the reason I sort of say that, I think people, especially early in their sort of career, they sort of, they're, they're, they're generally scared and they're not sure what to do. But I think the longer that I've been sort of doing this job is like, and I've had this experience so many times when you when you when your gut gets all tight and you're and you get really sort of nervous, that's happening for a reason, and you need to sort of trust that that there is something going on, and then to sort of deal with it afterwards. If I'm a new grad, though, how do I know that's I don't just have diarrhea because I'm scared and I'm the I'm first on scene for something that's going wrong. Like, at what point in your career do you go, okay, that's nerves, Michael, or actually that's a warning bell? Like, how do you develop that skill? I I, I think it's completely that you recognise that something's not normal, and as as soon as you recognise that something is moving away from the, what you would see every other day, like even if you've been doing it for six months a year it becomes pretty much routine. This is like you go in, you do this. Once it sort of gets a little bit sort of off from the from the routine or normal, that's when you go, oh, this isn't right. And I don't, I don't think you need to have years and years of experience to be able to sort of trust that sort of um, change. 
Yeah, that, that's a really good reflection, and I because I'm always wary of that. Oh, you'll just develop a sense of it, and there, and a lot of grads I've talked to feel like that's this unattainable thing that they're really worried about. So, is that something that we can do a bit a bit better job of actually teaching, transferring, and speeding up that kind of tacit knowledge? Do you think? I I think what it's not something that you teach. I think it's something that you acknowledge and you support. So when when someone comes to you and goes, I feel this is this is a problem, don't fob them off. Talk to them and then go to the patient and then you either confirm or then you can explain why it's not a problem. And then they develop their own sort of instincts and everything based on that. It's supporting these people. Like this is it. They're, they're bringing you a problem for a reason and you need to be appreciative of, of that. Yeah. I guess the important thing for me though is what you're saying is those instincts come on the background of theory and knowledge. Yeah. It's not like, oh, there's something in my waters. This is like... I've looked at, even if I'm a new grad, I've, I've looked at 30-odd patients. I've not seen this before. Yep. It doesn't feel okay. It, it doesn't match what I've seen before, so I should act on that. 100%. Yep. That's exactly it. Beautiful, because I, I think that's such a really important thing to kind of hammer home is that the gut feeling, because it gets fobbed away by people that don't articulate it anywhere nearly as well as you have just yep. then, that it is something to really it's a red flag to go, I've got to stop here and break out of my pattern of just doing OBS for surveillance purposes versus into this is an accessible exactly. sort of situation. Yeah. Perfect. So should we go to number three? Okay. So the next one is, it sounds probably a little bit sort of naff, but just talking to your patient and asking them how they feel because as, as we've sort of discussed, we, we become – not so much superficial, but like what, what Jesse sort of just said is we're doing it because we feel like we have to. Like if some if the patient is saying that they feel unwell or something has changed in them, we need to acknowledge it as well. Um, and then have it, it comes back to even that sort of therapeutic relationship. We need to sort of, wherever our keys are coming from, we need to sort of address them as they sort of come up because... If, if they feel well in themselves, regardless of what their OBS and everything may be sort of showing the, showing you, I think what the patient is actually feeling is probably one of the most important things and I think it's generally overlooked. Excellent. Uh, there's one little tangent. Um, I'm going a little bit rogue, but we've got time. One little tangent on that, um, Michael, I suppose, is how do you – you've been in a role that's a consulting and kind of roving and reviewing role um, in a lot of your career – how do you enter into building that therapeutic relationship quite quickly? Have you got any kind of phrases that you use to kind of get in and build rapport quickly? I think, and it is hard, it like, like on a Friday afternoon coming in and meeting someone for the first time, knowing that you're going to be quite um, present in, in their sort of care for the next week or so. Um, I think what, what one thing that I've always done, I've, I always try to sit like just in a chair or something, not to stand over a patient, be really mindful of my presence, um, sit down with them, explain to them who I am and what I intend to do for them, have a conversation, talk about what brought them here, how they're feeling and all that sort of stuff because just don't talk about that they have X and this is what I'm going to do, sort of involve their whole person. Yeah. Can I ask, if the patient then is unconscious, too unwell to speak, yep. how much would you defer to the relative, you know, to say, have you, you know, how often do they have seizures or 
Do, do they look right to yeah. you? Like how much would you then involve, I guess, the, the people around them? A lot uh, to answer that because this is like and, – and this is where you sort of learn empathy and all these other sort of things because you, you get to know how nervous and stressed everyone is around the bed, bedside and the more you can sort of go and, – and it is hard and, and I think this is something that definitely comes with time to be able to go in and address the concerns of the group rather than just the patient to say this is what's happening, this is what's planning and, and, that, and I guess that, that is a, probably from a more seniority where you feel comfortable but to be able to talk to everyone and then answer the questions, you may not know the answers but at least you are able to then go and find it but if you say you're going to do something, you always should do it. So if you say to a patient or a relative, I will do it, you, you need to do it. You can't just let them sort of hang. So it's that whole don't make any promises you can't keep. 100%, yeah. yeah. That's a really, really good point. And I suppose bringing it back to where we started with that is taking the time to actually get to know a little bit about the patient, what's normal for them and what's their problem in that moment that is worrying them the most because it might not be what we assume it is. Yeah, that, exactly. So number four. So the next one is, so what can I as a nurse do to improve the situation? And the reason I sort of brought this one up is because nursing has, it's sort of evolved from, uh, from a clinical assessment into you, you look at the chart and based on the, the numbers and the observations, then it sort of directs you off to, well, this is what I have to do if I have to escalate to, to this person or that person, which is fantastic for patient safety. But the reason I sort of put this in is what can I do to stop the escalation process in the first place sort of thing. So as patients become uncomfortable with pain or from a breathing perspective, there's a whole bunch of things that we can do as a nurse right at the get-go to um, to alleviate these and to stop them sort of getting sort of um, out of control. So making sure that we're giving adequate pain relief, if they need oxygen, being really sort of early, like early rather than late. So be... Um, Proactive, but proactive rather than reactive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The oxygen one's a good example because I've I, we've been doing a lot of work at my hospital, um, and in the deteriorating patient space from a course point of view and training and stuff. And a lot of the nurses aren't aware of the standing order for oxygen therapy yeah. in a medical emergency situation. And so because oxygen has swung so far to being seen as a drug and somewhat yeah. quite appropriately at, to the point where in most ward settings it needs to be prescribed, some of this is knowing those core critical standing orders. So things like salbutamol nebulizer in an asthmatic event, that, and that's going to vary from organization to organization but that's that fits very neatly into this what can i do mm. to improve the situation and sometimes that can also help for framing the escalation as well because if you're saying i've applied oxygen and i've given a nebulizer off the standing orders and this patient is still at yeah. this point rather than escalating immediately you're going to be told to Exactly. Apply oxygen yeah. and give it. And even, it even comes down to repositioning patients yeah. as well, sort of thing, making them in a position where they can breathe better. There's there's so many things that we can do before exactly what you sort of said before it becomes a problem. If you notice that someone is panic stricken, for example, and perhaps that's making the situation worse, as part of your assessment, would you see it 
um, and well, part of your intervention, would you see it as your role to say, you know, can you take some nice deep breaths and you look pretty frightened? Yeah. No, totally, because they're, they're generally scared for a reason. And what and this is comes comes down to what we sort of spoke about heaps, like that whole therapeutic relationship, sitting and, and giving them the time to sort of bring them back to sort of centre because what what was what kicked them off in the first place? Um, why, why are they in this sort of state? Um, you may not be able to do something if it was something um, that sort of evolved, like involved you, but you might go and grab someone else. And um, but it's looking after the patient, and this is what we're here for—we're to look after the patient. So if they're in that sort of moment, we need to try to fix it. So in that point of what you can do to improve the situation, do you ever ask the patient? Would you ever say to the patient or to the family? What's your number one concern at the moment? Or what's, if I could help you do one thing at the moment, what would it be? Do you ask those sorts of questions as the nurse? Uh, I do. Um, because especially like this is it, my background is trauma and I've been doing it for a while now. And because people have um, a lot of combined issues, because especially with trauma, they're well, they're well, and then they're not. It's not a chronic sort of thing. It's something that doesn't build up over time. And for what you think might be important to the patient might not be what's actually really sort of important to them. So what, just a, an easy example is one of the things we deal with a lot is um, how they're going to pay the bills. So it's got nothing to do with you looking after the patient, but that's their main priority. And it's then you getting them access to someone who will support them from that. So it's definitely talk to the patient what, what's their priority because it may not be what's yours. Beautiful. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things, uh, just drawing on that, my, a segue that I use a lot is um, what do you usually do when you're not here as a, as a conversation opener? Because I've found a few times um, through trial and error, things like asking, oh, what do you do for work? Layers of judgment on there. And then if they're unemployed, yeah. you can actually distance that relationship. So I think finding out a hell of a lot, but also getting into conversations that can distract and be a bit of a um, a bit of a removal from what we were focusing on the illness part and seeing if there's a calming just by the conversation alone. No. And that can be quite diagnostic in itself. So a little bit of conversational distraction therapy while you're continuing to eyeball. No, exactly. Talk about the kids, talk about the dog, whatever yeah. sort yeah. of thing. And then you notice, don't you, whether they're still having trouble breathing or whether when they're relaxed, <laughs> yeah. you know, that tracheal tug or whatever has gone away because they're they're distracted exactly oh good from the social worker exactly see (laughs) see this is why we're a multidisciplinary team (laughs) all right okay so the last one and i think this is really important i think it's been sort of highlighted a lot even through this chat is don't be don't be afraid to escalate because i think for the junior sort of staff they feel um they don't feel sometimes they don't feel supported by their seniors, and from a senior ma- manage, um, member of staff, like it is so important. So if someone has an issue, we need to, as I said before, acknowledge it, um, appreciate it, and then work with them. Because I think the worst thing that we want to do is to deal with the situation when it's gone horribly wrong. Um, it's easy to sort of address it and to work through it um, before it gets out of hand. I think as a, as now someone that um, is in the bald headed senior brigade of um, of healthcare as well, I've kind of set myself a red flag for myself to go if I have something brought to me as an escalation. Going, I am not allowed to normalise from the desk. Yep. I, I can come to the bedside and go through a process and end up landing on where we're going to normalise what's going on. This is part of it. This is expected, but I can't do that 
as a satellite job. I've set that kind of rule for myself because it puts you in a position where you're role modeling the assessment that you should do when that concern is raised. It validates the concern and even and it's often quicker and more effective than just dismissing something alone and normalizing it away. No, exactly. And as I said, it comes back from trusting your gut. If you feel like there's a problem, raise it because I think that's the the, the biggest thing is not doing anything about it. And if there's nothing to be done, it could be a teaching moment. You could use it from so many different aspects. So having worked in hospitals for a long time, I've only ever hit the buzzer, you know, twice myself. And it's it's terrifying. You you know someone needs help. You know you need to put out a met call. But the decision to hit that button, like how 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 do you get over that? Like how do you know this is the time to do it? And... Have you got any suggestions around that? Because I imagine if you're a new grad, it's pretty terrifying. Well, this is it. From a, from a new grad perspective and even from the current sort of observation sort of system, it will tell you when to do it. So this is it. If you follow A, B and C, it will lead you to whether you need to sort of do a mert, like call a mert. The whole thing is if it's if you keep sort of saying to someone that something's not right and they fob you off, it's easier to call call from it and then ask for forgiveness later type of thing if there's nothing. But it's trusting your instincts, trusting your gut. If there's something wrong with the patient um, and people aren't acknowledging it, then put it out there. And we've evolved so much in medical emergency systems that the responding team more and more are, are understanding and realising that a lot of the time these things are products of futile cycles that are going on and sometimes the MERT or MET, depending on where you work, is a circuit breaker mm. of those futile therapeutic cycles, a lack of goals of care, a lot of the other things that fall between the lines of a clinical escalation criteria. So think of the medical emergency team as, as an expansion of your own team. Um, I can say that from years of responding to them. There's uh, The best thing to do is be really clear about what your actual worry is and sometimes it's just seeking out the uh, someone to relay that to in the team that comes um, depending on the team structure. But I've always would say that the ICU nurse, if you're the ward nurse, seek them out and go, look, this is what it was escalated because of but there's these problems that are going on that we just can't break and we're worried about. And that helps the team really get to the guts of what's going on and will make you feel much more empowered rather than everyone kind of wondering why the MERT was called. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Agree. Wonderful. So in summary, you've given us five fantastic points about what we should do with patient assessment. Number one, be tactile and hands-on, you know, touch your patient and work, you know, work with them. Number two, trust your gut if you really think, look, I know I'm junior, but I, I've not seen this before, this doesn't feel okay, then do something about it. Number three, talk to the patient or the relatives and get some background knowledge. They are the experts in their own health. Uh, number four, ask what you can do to improve the situation. And that could be as something as simple as positioning or getting some pain relief all the way to a, a proper escalation. And number five, the big segue, don't be afraid to actually escalate. Absolutely. I think that is a beautiful summary of the chat. And thank you very much, Michael Handy, for giving us your five things and a little bit of an insight into how you got where you are now. Yeah. I guess the finishing question is, where's next? Oh, God, who knows? Um, I don't know. I'm happy where I am. Absolutely. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Exactly. <laughs> this is it. Uh, I've got a pretty good job and I'm pretty happy. 
Great. Thanks so much. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things. <laughs>